This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Finding Your Bliss with host Judy Liebrach. Heard every Saturday at 1 p.m. on Zoomer Radio. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Finding Your Bliss, the show that helps you find and follow your bliss. I'm Judy Liebrach, and I'm really delighted to welcome our celebrity guest today, Roz Weston. You know him, of course, as one of the co-hosts of the Roz and Mocha show, and of course, as one of the longtime hosts of Ichi Canada with Cheryl Hickey. But it is his new best-selling book, A Little Bit Broken, a memoir that brings him here today. I wept honestly, every night as I read this book. I'm sorry. <laughs> Don't be. It was wonderful. <laughs> and it resonated so deeply with me. And I have to tell you that when I wasn't crying, I was laughing. So I just want to tell the audience a little bit more about you before we talk. But Roz Weston, of course, is a multi-platform entertainer and storyteller. In 2013, Hello! magazine named him one of the 50 most beautiful Canadians, and it's true. And as he says, he has not made the list since, but he will again, I'm sure. Growing up in small town with above average confidence but low self-esteem, Roz knew he wanted an audience, but he didn't want to be noticed. One of the dichotomies we'll talk about. And on TV and radio as host of the Roz and Mocha show, ET Canada Live and Entertainment Tonight Canada, Roz has entertained and continues to entertain millions without ever having to see a single one of them. So he got his wish. A college dropout, Roz is a Canadian music and broadcast industry awards winner. There's another dichotomy there. He is a New York Festival of Radio winner and Canadian Screen Awards winner. He's a former factory line worker. And one of his coolest credits is that he was a Howard Stern intern. And wow, you've got to read about all of that in the book. And a late night talk show host. Roz lives in Toronto with his beautiful fiance, their beautiful daughter, and four cats. We just saw the cats, actually, or heard about yeah. them. Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah. yeah. They're around and here. He still misses his dad, which is so poignant, and I get more than you can imagine. Roz Weston, welcome to Finding Your Bliss. Thank you. It's uh, very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I have to congratulate you on this book, A Little Bit Broken, a memoir. It's really a masterpiece. It is wow. poignant. It is brutally honest, raw, real, heartbreaking, funny. And I love the palpable love that you've always had for your dad. And you grabbed yeah. us right from the get-go with this writing that is so evocative, engaging, and so readable. I was really hooked from page one. And interestingly, so was everybody else because your book, and congratulations on this, is the Toronto Star's number one bestseller and the Globe and Mail's number one bestseller. How did you feel when that first shipment arrived from Doubleday Canada and you held the book in your hands for the first time? Wow. I mean, there's been a lot of sort of periods throughout this because the process of writing the book, book world takes, I'm used to TV and radio where it's instant. It's daily deadlines, if not hourly deadlines and sort of by the minute. So getting into book world and I met with my, just to give people some context here of how long things take. I had my first meeting about the book with my agent when I met my agent for the first time. And that was November, 2019. 
Wow. Right. That was the first meeting that I had about the book and then started working on the proposal and everything else. And then as you sort of write, you're very much into the storytelling. And when I was writing this book, I like cried every day and it was emotional and I needed my family and I like all of this stuff. But then you get to a point when you're writing a book where you're very detached from it because mm-hmm. you're in this sort of like editing process where it's about specific words and, you know, and puncture, like all of this stuff. And so I went about six months where I was very detached from the stories and Mm -hmm. I was really no longer emotional about it. And then you sort of release the book and it goes into the world. And then when the feedback starts coming in, I became far more emotional about it Mm -hmm. than even what I was before, because I realized that it was impacting people and people were seeing themselves, you know, in the book and their stories sort of matching my stories. But it really hit me by surprise because by the time it was released, I was really done with it. Like in a weird Mm -hmm. way, I was sort of over it already. (laughs) And the hardest part hadn't even happened yet, which was sort Mm -hmm. of releasing it and getting feedback from people. Um, So it's been really wonderful. And I had said that I would have felt that the book was a success for me if I got one message from somebody that said that they, you know, saw a little bit of their selves in my story. But it has just been this wave, like an onslaught of just daily, daily, daily. And I mean, people are writing me like three and four hundred word DMs constantly just about how they, you know, sort of relate to one small part of the story. Not necessarily the whole thing, but they gravitate towards one small part. So when I got those first books to answer your question, I really didn't think anything of it. You know, it was product, like it was content. I wasn't emotionally attached to it. You know, like these things were just sort of lying around the house. It was just a thing. And then I sort of re-embraced it afterwards when the feedback started coming. I sort of went back and I was like, oh yeah, there's a lot of hard work and a lot of scars and a lot of tears in that. And it wasn't just a job because it sort of felt like that at the end. And so it was the reaction to it that made me sort of relive all of the emotion that it took to write it again. You wrote an entire book for over two years, ultimately to propose to the love of your life, Catherine, who is also the mother of your child, Roxy. And it's really kind of the love story of the century. I mean, that just makes me ball as well. And I love that you dedicate the book to Catherine and tell her right away in the Friends piece to go to page 321, the chapter that, of course, she never read until the book was published. And we have a clip from ET Canada with your longtime co-host, Cheryl Hickey, who's been on this show as well. And in this clip, you describe the proposal to Cheryl, and then we hear your fiance, Catherine, and that moment she found out once the book was published. Let's roll that clip. I may be the only person who has ever written an entire book just to propose to the person they love. I said this before, but you ruined it for all men. And that was You're not my intention. the most romantic man on the planet. How long did you know that you were going to propose? Almost two years. As soon as I got a book deal, I knew that this was how it was going to end in the last chapter. There's a line that says, when you- When you choose to spend your life with someone, you're also choosing the person who will tell your story when you're gone. And if you're lucky, you'll find someone who only sees the best in you. Wow, and there's more, there's lots more, but oh my God, like every woman in the world was bawling and it's true, it's ruined it for guys forever because- Which was the first (laughs) thing I heard and that was not my intention like at all, but that was the first thing I started uh, hearing because we released the proposal before the book 
right? Like I, that was part of it is that I went to the publisher because they didn't know the proposal part existed. I snuck it in at the very end when I submitted my final manuscript. And then they were like blown away and they were like, oh my God, this is amazing. And I said, yeah, and I'm going to spoil the book. I'm going to release this before the book is released. And there was a bunch of reasons why, but for me, the main reason why I needed to release that video and the proposal before the book came out is because I knew that this book was a tough read. And I needed people to go into it knowing that there was a happy ending. It's just phenomenal. I can't imagine what it must have felt like to have kept so many secrets, fabrications about your life, and then finally to reveal it all, like self-harming, battling an opioid addiction, substance abuse. And once you got past the vulnerability of that, and I'm sure that must have been brutal letting that go. Was it freeing and cathartic in a way for you to release it all out there into the world? Yeah, it was. In a weird way, the hardest parts of my story were, in a lot of ways, the easiest ones to write. Because when I sat down, I committed to just being honest. I don't read a lot. And I certainly don't read a lot of memoirs. And so going into this, I didn't really have a frame of how honest people generally are in their sort of memoirs. I had nothing to compare it to. And so I just went for it. And Mm -hmm. the sort of deeper I got into it, people were like, wow, there's a lot in here. And I was like, isn't that normal? And the (laughs) response was, no, people don't usually go that far. (laughs) And so it was cathartic. And the thing that was really the most cathartic for me was, and I'm sure we'll talk about my relationship with my dad, but my, when my dad died, there was no, like social media didn't exist and none of that stuff existed. And I found it fascinating that a person who was so brilliant and meant so much to so many people in the sort of late 90s, early 2000s, as current as that, you know, they can die and there's no permanent record of them other than other people's memories of who loved that person. And so that's sort of where that line in the end of the book came where, you know, it was sort of up to, it's up to us to tell those stories. And I wanted a big part of this because I just, you know, I I loved my dad so much, even though I made a lot of mistakes when he was dying, but I just felt that his stories were ones that needed to not die with me because if I didn't tell them Catherine never met my dad. My kid never met my dad. And so if I didn't tell those stories, my stories will always exist through podcasts and through the radio show, all of this stuff. It's archived like crazy. There's thousands of hours of me that exist and will always exist in the world. But there was zero of my dad. And if I didn't tell those stories, those stories would no longer exist past me. Wow. There's so many wonderful mantras in the book, but one of my favorites, which really you learned from your dad, is we don't fix things, we replace them. And so that poignant story right off the top of the book of your dad fixing the broken arm of your G.I. Joe when you were a little kid is just one of the most evocative scenes yeah. in the book. And when you went to him so despondent and every you know mother and every father and kid can relate to this and you were like, my G.I. Joe is ruined. And you didn't get presents every day. This was a Christmas present. This was something special. And he said to you, it's not ruined. It's just a little bit broken. Nothing we can't fix. And he melted that arm back together with a piece of the cap of a blue Bic pen that he torched with his Zippo. And you write, it wasn't perfect. It was never perfect, but it was fixed. And your father had a knack for figuring out what was broken and finding a way to make it work again. Even you, he was even able to fix you. How did it feel to have a dad like him? 
Um, it was it was incredible. But when you're a kid, you sort of don't know any different, right? Like everybody thinks that their dad is the best dad in the world, even if your you know father is lousy, because it's the only father you know, and you don't really have anything to compare it to until you sort of get a little bit older. But my dad was fascinating in the sense that I knew he was different, mm-hmm. right? And not different from me, but different from other dads. And I didn't know why, but as I got older, his stories evolved. And then you realize that he had this life and I knew he, you know, was American. I always knew that, but I didn't know why we never went to Disneyland when I was a kid. And then sort of, as I got older, the stories evolved. I learned why he would never go back to America and all this stuff. And so my relationship with my dad was constantly evolving. And I think that it continued to evolve. We never got to a point of where I think we really knew everything about each other. And that's a fascinating place to leave things after somebody dies is that even with my dad, there was still so much about him that was incomplete Mm -hmm. because he died young and because I was so young. But there was so much about him and his story that was incomplete that that's one of the things that I always had in the back of my head when I sat down to write this. It was also so important to you that people know him as a good guy. What a great guy he was. And even how your dad met your mom is just such a great story. And you were reluctant to share it at first because you wanted to make sure there was no mistaking what was really happening. He was a guy in love. He wanted this woman and he did it in a kindly way, very manly way, actually. And you describe it so well in the book. Can you just tell us about how your dad knew He had to spend the rest of his life with your mom, made sure that the other guy knew it too. Yeah. So my dad was in Vietnam and he did two tours in Vietnam and he was, they were forcing a third on him. It was a a sort of system called stop loss, where Mm -hmm. instead of doing your sort of mandatory tour, they would force you to do a second and a third and a fourth and everything else. And he had done two and he got shot and he was on leave in California where he had been living and he was about to ship out for his third tour. And he knew that this was going to be it, that there was no way he was going to survive three tours of Vietnam. So he had grown up for a small part of his life in Montreal. And that's sort of the only other place that he knew. And he flew to Montreal. And when he got to Montreal, he took all his Marine outfit and his hat and his everything else. He kept his medals, but sent everything in a garbage bag to the Armed Forces Recruiting Station in Mm -hmm. Buffalo, New York, because it was all garbage to him. And he never wanted anything to do with that. And then he found a place to live. And that's my mom lived in that same sort of duplex. And at that time, you know, we didn't talk, there was no real concern when it came to soldiers and uh, mental health and PTSD. And they called it shell shock then. Like you were just screwed up. You know, you just needed time. Mm-hmm. And nobody really took it seriously. And he dealt with what he saw and what he did the same way a lot of vets did, which was he drank. And he was a professional mm-hmm. alcoholic at that time, from what I understand. And he met my mom, and my mom was very much engaged. And my dad's whole mm-hmm. life and his place in it were shaped by violence. His parents were violent, his sibling was violent. He lived a violent life, and that's really all he mm-hmm. sort of knew. And he met my mom and my mom was very much engaged and she was engaged to this guy named Cliff and they were all living in Montreal together and my, they fell in love, madly in love. And my dad took Cliff, they were all friends for a walk around the block one night and he just said, hey, listen, you know, we can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard <laughs> way. But as soon as we get back to the apartment, you're going to go upstairs and get the ring back from Diana because I'm going to marry her. And Cliff knew my dad and knew what the easy way was, but more importantly, he knew what the hard way was. And so when they got back to the apartment, he walked upstairs and took his ring back and they never saw the man again. 
And then my parents were married within a, you know, uh, less than a year after that. And it's crazy because when that story was told to me as a kid, it was very romantic. Like my parents would tell that story at parties and people would swoon. And then the sort of older I got, I stopped telling that story because I didn't want people to see my dad as anything other than loving and wonderful and kind and gentle. Because that guy that he was, that sort of young man that was raised on nothing but, you know, violence. Mm -hmm. I never saw that man. I never met that man. I never heard anybody speak about that man other than him and my mother, because he was erased. Because by the time I was born, he went to rehab and just flipped the script on everything and realized that he was going to be the first father in the history of his family to not destroy his children. And he made a commitment to that. And so I didn't want to ruin that because that's the man that he saw in himself. And I never told that story again because I didn't want anybody to see him other than loving and wonderful and kind and gentle. We're going to go on a short commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to find out what a wonderful family Roz had and how their house was the place to be. More with TV and radio personality Roz Weston and his new book, A Little Bit Broken, when we come back back in a moment. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by Create, Canada's leading fertility center for over 25 years. Create is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. Create is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, Create is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. Create has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? Create Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about Create Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. We are back, and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. We're here with Roz Weston talking about his fantastic new book, A Little Bit Broken. And Roz, you paint such a vivid, evocative picture of this wonderful family and how dinner at your family's house was the best part of your day. And that your yeah. house was also a refuge for anyone who had problems in their marriage, their job, or their life in any way, which is a little bit of foreshadowing for what you do on the Roz and Mocha show. You give advice to everyone. And they would come to your parents' house for advice and to escape to a safe place. What do you think it was about your dad and mom that made everyone run away from home to them? That's an, it's a really, you know, it, it's, it's, I hadn't really thought about that part of growing up and my parents until I sat down to put it in the book. And I think that my parents were, they just, and this is such an overused term, but I'm going to use it because I don't know what else to say right now, but I think they got it. Mm -hmm. You know, my dad understood what it was for young men to be frustrated. Mm -hmm. And he got that. And my mom understood what it meant when young women weren't heard. And I think that the combination of the two of them with my friends growing up, whether it was the guys or the girls that came over, they were given an opportunity to talk to somebody who was older in a position of authority, a parental figure mm -hmm. um, who never judged them because they mm -hmm. had sort of been through it all. And I think that that is the one thing that kept people coming back is that they just never felt judged. How cool was that for you? How did that feel for you being the kid, you and your brother, Rich, getting to be in that house that everybody wanted to come to? 
Yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, it, don't get me wrong, it was great because you always had friends over. Like, you have to understand, when I say friends over, I mean friends were over, even if I was not home. <laughs> like, I would come home, if I was at a friend's house, I could come <laughs> home to my house and see two of my friends eating dinner at my table with my mom and dad, right? Like, wow. when I say wow. my house was full of my friends, like, that's just the way that it was. So it was kind of cool because you never had to go anywhere when your friends just lived at the house. Um, but this is just what they did, you know? If we had friends that didn't have a lot, but they had great interests. My parents would invite them over on Christmas and they would covertly give them the things to sort of fuel their artistic, creative outlets and, and whatever it was, because they just never wanted to see a kid fall because my dad never had that. And that's sort of where I grew up, right? That's the house that I grew up in. Your Christmases. I love the all when you talk about the turkey and the different ways to broth yeah. the turkey. I have a great turkey recipe, by the way, if you need it. That's really Please. That, I'll that's take a them very, all. very good one. Uh, <laughs> I found the scene when you and Rich went to your parents' home when your dad had passed away. I can't even talk about it. And your mom said, Go upstairs and take whatever you want. And I so related to this thing of you looking for that definitive thing, that letter, or that something that would explain it all, you know, and all that stuff. And you didn't find it. Instead, you found a cardigan that still sits on the left side of your closet. Not even one that was extra special, just an ordinary, inconsequential one. And I don't know what it was in that scene, but I was bawling, like full on bawling during this chapter. How was that for you writing emotional scenes like that one? Like it just tore me up. Yeah. You know, it tore me up. And a lot of the stuff that had scarred me in the past, that day really hurt. That day scarred me a lot. And I knew that I had to deal with it. There was so much stuff in the book that I just hadn't told anyone. And like Catherine, I love Catherine more than anyone in Roxy. But I'll tell you, I would write these stories and I would write these chapters. And I wrote this book basically our couch and Roxy was sitting in one corner, either knitting or working on grade five, which she was at the time. <laughs> Catherine was sitting beside me reading or doing whatever. And I was on the end and I would finish a chapter and I would look at Catherine and I would say, Hey, do you have 15 minutes? And she'd be like, yeah. And I would take my computer and I would put it on her lap and she would read these chapters. And I would say that 80% of the stuff in the book, she had no idea about none. Mm -hmm. And so she would read these chapters and then we would cry together or we would laugh together or she would have questions like what the hell was going on in your life. But that story about the cardigan was incredible. And Catherine actually, she shot the pictures for the book. And so this is a, she's a photographer. And so mm -hmm. Catherine shot the cover here. And then when we were talking about what to do for the back picture cover, and a couple of fans have pointed this out and they got it. But in the back cover right there, this is the one and only time I've taken my dad's cardigan off that hanger. And I wore it in the picture of the back of the book. Oh. And that's why this picture is not in black and white is because I wanted to people to know that that was his cardigan. And then we took these photos and I put it back on the hanger where it's been for years. And the sort of that's where it will stay, you know, forever oh now. God. But I, I wore it one time and one time only for the picture of the book. I just got the chills when you said that. I also just want to tell everyone, and I wish I could show everyone, but it's on the radio. But even the color of the inside yeah. back of the book, this beautiful pink, it's just so inviting. Like, guys, this is the best Christmas present in the world. And you should get two, one oh, for you and one, God, for, <laughs> and one for someone else. As I was reading this, before I even got to the therapist chapter, I almost felt yeah. that you would need a therapist to go through some of this. This is some pretty heavy stuff. But yeah. you actually saw a psychiatrist once and never went back. <laughs> Can you tell us what it was about seeing a shrink that turned you off so much? 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I never grew up with therapy as an option, right? I didn't have that kind of life. I wasn't that kind of kid. Nobody I had ever known had ever had a therapist, right? Like that was just some, Mm -hmm. you know, expensive kind of stuff that you only see in movies kind of thing, right? And so I didn't really know how to therapy. And I knew that I was going through a lot because at that period, what happened was, is my marriage was ending, my dad was dying, and I just lost my job. Mm. And I didn't know what to do, but I knew I needed to talk to somebody. And so I had found this guy that I had known professionally in the past, and I booked this appointment with him. And it was interesting because when you're a young man, and I, I, for the most part, I think that maybe young women are like this too, but when you're a young man, there's two things that somebody can say to you that will be devastating. And one of those things is that you're messed up right? That's devastating to hear. But when you're a young man, something that's almost even more devastating is when you feel messed up and somebody tells you you're normal. Yes. And that is what sort of hurt the most. And when I went into therapy, I went in trying to like impress them. I treated it like a first date, like we were getting to know each other. Yeah. And I didn't want to say too much to offend him. And I didn't want to, you know, say I, I wanted to be therapy worthy, but like not too much of a project because I wanted <laughs> to be invited. Like all of this yeah. stuff, right? And most importantly in therapy, yeah. why it didn't work was because at that moment, I wasn't ready to do the work to sort of unpack everything and put all my decisions on trial to what got me into his office that morning. And that was the sort of reason I never went back that time um, was because I just wasn't ready to do the work. And I needed him because I was carrying so much guilt at that time. I needed him to tell me that everything was my fault and Mm. that I needed to just suck it up. And that's what I was hoping for in therapy. I was hoping that he would have put it sort of all at my feet and Mm. say, you know, that it was my fault. Instead, what he wanted to do was sort of take it all the way back to the beginning. And Mm. all that stuff at the beginning is what I didn't want to talk about because right. I never talked about it before. So I just wasn't ready. And then I just tried to impress him. Like I tried to seem cool. I tried to make him laugh. Like it was the weirdest thing. But I think that, you know, you just rely on when you're in uncomfortable situations, you rely on your tools that you have. And I wasn't a great communicator at the time, but I could make people laugh. I could charm people. And that's what I did in therapy. And it was a disaster. Wow. You're very candid about the scene in the book where you were molested in the closet as a nine-year-old boy and you didn't have the language at the time to process it. I found this really heartbreaking as a mom. And you've written that you didn't even understand any of this until you were much older, that what happened really was not okay. No. How have you been able to compartmentalize this abuse? And do you think that writing about it was part of the catharsis that you needed? Writing about it was... So that that sort of period of my life when I was assaulted in a closet by a family friend, um, Mm. it was like I I always remembered it happening, but it wasn't until years later when I was grown where I realized that it shouldn't have happened. Mm -hmm. Right. It was always something that I was familiar with, almost like a story that was told to me rather than one in which I was sort of the star of. Right. And that moment affected so many other things that were were sort of going on throughout my life. One of which was, you know, we don't discuss 
sort of sexualizing of young men. We talk a lot about young women and how damaging it is, and we know the consequences of sexualizing young women, but we rarely discuss it when it comes to young men. And I just happen to be one of those men, young guys, where I was six foot when I was, you know, in grade eight, and I looked Mm. like a man. And people treat you like a man. Mm. Other men would treat me violently, and women would sort of treat me as an equal, flirtatiously, everything else. And I didn't know how else to act. So I it was easier for me instead of fighting back and sort of in that moment in the closet and then with people I would meet, it was easier for me to become the thing that they expected rather than fight back and sort of set the record straight. So I went through most of my life just sort of becoming the thing that they expected me to be. And that Mm -hmm. involved a long, long history of promiscuity and uh, non-feeling relationships where Mm -hmm. I would be in these relationships sometimes Mm -hmm quick ones, sometimes longer ones, where emotionally I would be completely detached. Physically, I was incredibly present. Emotionally, I was completely detached because I wasn't me. I was always just this thing that they had thought that I was. And I liked being those people, you know, sometimes I really did. You know, I I liked that. I liked the person that they thought I was. And so I would just continue it until it became too much. And then I would disappear. Wow. 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 You know, I pointed out this earlier, but it was so fascinating to me that what you do as the co-host of your number one radio show, The Roz and Mocha Show, which, by the way, has one million listeners. I found that pretty exciting because I have nowhere near there at that amount. So I was going, wow, that's a lot of listeners. And by the way, my niece, Adina, is the biggest fan of yours. And that's how she gets to work every day with you and for years and years. So uh, it's just the coolest. But you on the show give advice to people about their marriages, careers, problems, children. And it's almost like you're doing what your dad and mom did at your dinner table, but for an audience of 1 million listeners on a much grander scale on broadcast radio. And there's a question that you ask on the radio, Roz, that you write about that resonated so intensely with me because I'm a life coach. And I always ask my clients, what do you love to do? But you have perfected that question with one of the most excellent questions I've ever heard. And that is when someone's really stuck in their marriage, in their career, not happy. You say something really fabulous. We're going to go on a short commercial break. And when we come back, we'll find out from Roz Weston what question he asks people when they're really stuck. We'll be right back in a moment. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by CREATE, Canada's leading fertility centre for over 25 years. CREATE is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. CREATE is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, CREATE is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. CREATE has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? CREATE Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about CREATE Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. We are back, and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio, AM 740, and I've been having a wonderful conversation with Roz Weston from The Roz and Mocha Show, who is also the author of this incredible new book called A Little Bit Broken. And just before the break, Roz, I was mentioning that you have a question that you ask people when they're stuck, and the question is this, what are you good at? 
Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. I just, I love that. To what do you attribute to that, to the whole advice giving? It's almost like you're a therapist, you're a coach, and you're so good at it, to your success in doing all of that. Well, I I mean, I attribute it to, geez, when you go through the book, the one, one of those sort of reactions that I got a lot when the book was released from fans, which was now everything you say in that segment makes sense because I've always wondered why you're able to just relate to all of these sort of situations. And then you read the book and you realize because I've lived them. Right. Right. Um, but yeah, so what are you good at? And to me, it's lost on people, the importance of a hobby it's lost on people the mm-hmm. importance of being proud of something that you've accomplished that you're not necessarily rewarded for. You know, I have mm-hmm. all sorts of things in my life that I love to do that I have no desire to turn into a side hustle. Everything is a side hustle right now. Or you mm-hmm. look at your skills as, you know, when I say to somebody, you know, what are you good at? And they say, you know, well, my job. And I'm like, doesn't count. What else are you good at? And they're like, well, I'm, I'm a good dad. I'm like, doesn't count. What else are you good at? I'm like, well, you know, I'm great at going to the gym. And I'm like, doesn't count. What are you good at? You have to get good at something and you have to do something you're good at every single day. Mm-hmm. And for me, that is what opened up my world of what I realized I was missing the most, which was I wasn't learning anything new. And as soon as I understood how great something felt to be good at something, to make something for somebody else, whether it's a meal or a craft or a song or a story or whatever it was, how good that feels, I became the person who spends most of my time learning new stuff. And I don't just learn it, I learn it and do it. And because of that, I'm. it's like merit badges, right? It's like when you go to camp and you learn all these new skills. <laughs> and that's yes. sort of the way that I've built my life now is I love learning new things. And I was shocked the first time I asked somebody, what are you good at? And the first time somebody said nothing, my heart broke. Yes. Then I heard somebody answer that question with the word nothing a dozen times, and then two dozen times, and then 50 times. And I found it crushing. You know, these are yeah. people who are well into their 30s that really will look at you and admit that they are not good at anything. And then they oh. wonder why they feel like they're stuck. Of course. This is my whole thing. I'm a bliss coach. I help people find their bliss. And It's so great that you're not only doing stuff that you love in this unbelievable career of yours, but that you're also finding your bliss every day by learning these new things. And it's just a brilliant, oh. And what it comes down to is that you learn all these new things. And then what you realize sort of at the end of it, okay, is that one of the things that you become really good at is you become good at being you. And I say that as somebody who sees a lot of people who their identity is projected onto them. They create this thing, they send it out into the world, and then they judge themselves by what comes back through whether social media or any sort of parental reaction or the reaction from, you know, your spouse or girlfriend or or whoever it may be. And they're not good at being them, right? Because they don't have that identity. They don't have something to be proud of. They don't have something analog. Their entire world is digital. And then when you get good at being you, that is when you can then project that out. And what comes back is the reaction is not blind praise, but the reaction is, I don't know how you did that. 
right? And that is the sort of reaction you want. You don't want somebody to just double tap. You want engagement with people. If we're talking about a social media world, you want that engagement. And I think that a lot of people just really aren't good at being them and they leave their self-identity up to the way others look at them. And then they cater their life to the way other people look at them. It's a destructive and cold and lonely place to be because I was there for a very long time. Wow, wow, wow. Oh, let's talk about the radio show for a moment because that was, I mean, I I couldn't get over that story about how Farrah Fawcett had died. You were working on Entertainment Tonight. Then your phone rang 28 times, 28 messages on your answering machine because Michael Jackson had suddenly died. And now you're asked to go and you've got your carry-on bag always ready to go. I understand that because I have a daughter in New York, so I've always got the carry-on bag ready. And you go and there you are and you get there and you get the call of a lifetime about this radio show that they want you to host. Yeah, it was crazy. And Catherine was pregnant at the time too. And I had never been ready to host a radio show before. One, because I think that if you're going to do it, you have to have something to say. And I didn't really have anything to say. I never really had the confidence. And it wasn't until Catherine was pregnant where I would even have considered this. It was the idea of being a dad that changed my life for the better. And when I found out that this radio station was coming back, I wrote the boss, this woman named Juliana, who has saved my life twice. And I wrote Mm. her and I was like, listen, I've never done this before. I've never hosted a radio show before, but here's why I think that you should hire me to do this. And I wrote her this letter and thank God it was a brand new station and they didn't have a huge budget and they didn't have all this other stuff. And she wound up hiring me for the show. And it was a life-changing period in sort of my journey in the sense that it was the first thing that I did where, one, I wasn't afraid to fail because I think that that's huge. Mm-hmm. The fear of failure had driven so much of my life. There's so much I missed out on because I never wanted anyone to see me fail at anything. But because I was already working at ET Canada and I already had this big TV job, if this didn't work out, I think I would have been okay with it because I, I wouldn't have looked at it as a failure because I would have just gone back to doing a network television show, which is a lot of people's other big giant dream jobs. And I would have been okay with it. And I went into it clean and I went into it as a different person, knowing that in just a few months that I was going to be a dad. And that sort of world is what I was going to build this identity on for the radio show, is that I was going to sort of, you know, Mm. be that thing that I had never heard on radio before. Wow. She gave you five pieces of advice. Two of them were have fun. What were some of the other ones? Don't remember. I don't remember. And and it's funny because I, Julie was one of the first people that I gave the book to, to read because I value her opinion so, so much. She was just somebody in my life that told me to have fun. And I've centered so much of the last 13 years on that show around that. And I think that one of the things that makes me a good man, and I think that one of the things that makes me a good father and a good person and so calm is that I'm a grown up who's almost 50 who has the luxury of living a life where I get to play. And I think that when adults lose their drive to play, when they lose the environment to play, when they lose the friends that still want to play, and I don't mean going out and getting drunk and doing all those grown-up things. I mean playing. (laughs) It's so freeing and it's such a wonderful place to be that that's sort of what my life has become. And you you talk about joy and bliss and everything else. And for me, that's exactly what it is. It's the building a life that allows me as an adult where I get to play every day. And Mm. that's sort of what maintains any kind of youthful 
glow that I may have, but it's also, it makes me a better parent. <laughs> it's do. what makes me a better parent. You know, it, it made, especially when Roxy was younger, it's what made me a great dad was that I came to play because that's my life. Well, you're a very creative being. And I think your creativity is exploding now because you've figured that out. And what a gift that is. To get yeah. your job at KISS, the main thing you convinced the producer who was hiring you was that you understood your audience. And as you wrote the first draft of that email over a two-day period while all of this Michael Jackson stuff was going on in the background, you figured that out, that you understood your audience. And I think that might yeah. explain why you have one million listeners. But can you explain how you arrived at that understanding and who your audience yeah. is and how you knew all of that? Yeah, so the radio is a very competitive, like everything else is. And I have always had the sort of notion that I know that I am not going to be everything to everyone. And I judge success differently. And especially in radio, I realize that, you know, if you truly do radio right, you don't become famous, you become family. And that's the sort of way that the audience looks at you. We have famous fans that grew up listening to the show and we raise these kids, you know, like it's, it's incredible. Like I remember when, um, you know, Simu Lu, who Shang-Chi in the Marvel movies, the first time he came in to see us, which was a couple of years ago, you know, wow. he's a Marvel superhero and he came in and he was like dying. Like he walked in the room and he was like, oh my God, like this is the show that I listened to when I was 12 and my mom was driving me to grade eight. And you feel like family. And I don't want to feel any differently about the show. I like that that's what it is to people. And radio is a lot of different things to a lot of different people. You can build a show that is designed to do sort of one thing. I will build a show that's designed to do this. And this is the only kind of show that I will do. I, I couldn't go and be anything else on a radio show. And the audience just, they mean the world to me. Like And, and just stuff that you take for granted. We had a woman calling this morning who didn't know how to tell her mom that she was pregnant with her first kid. And we were like, can we call your mom and you can just tell her now? And she's like, oh my God, yes. And we shared this incredible <laughs> moment together, right? Like we shared this incredible moment together between these two people, these two strangers that we had never met. And then as soon as the call was done, you know, we were just like on to the next thing. And then it was only after the show today. I'm like, oh my God. Like that was such a big moment in their lives. Wow. And the first thing that she wanted to do was not only share it with her mom, but share it with me and us. And, you know, that wow. is just something that you, you could spend a lifetime trying to build that bond, but it has to happen naturally. Oh, what a great story. You had to listen to dozens of audition tapes to choose a co-host. What was it that made you realize that Mocha was the guy for you? Mm. Because he was chaos, but he was competent. <laughs> and I could tell talent. I needed somebody who was incredibly talented because I'd never hosted a radio show before. I've still, we've been doing this show for 13 years. I've never introduced a song on the radio. Like I've never, I don't have that skill. I've never had to do that. Um, but I was looking for something. And I think that many of the other people who were auditioning to do the show with me, I would have failed with every single one of them. They were looking for a way out of their current situation. It wasn't so much that they wanted to build something wonderful.
grateful with me that could last. They were looking for a way mm-hmm. out. And this was the sort of next rung on the ladder. And I don't blame people because that's the business. That's how you have to keep moving and moving and moving. But stylistically, there was nobody that I felt that I fit with. And when I heard Mocha, mm-hmm. I just, I knew, like, I just knew that that was the guy. And then it turns out that after we sort of, you know, re-met again, because we had met, you know, a few years before that, but I didn't remember, he remembered, but I didn't remember. I realized that he's just about the sweetest person that I've ever met mm-hmm. in my life. Aww. And we made a pact that our lives were going to be tied together. When we eventually had families, our families' lives were going to be tied together. And we removed all of the things from a radio show that destroy radio shows, which is, you know, we negotiate together as a team. We have never had a meeting with any boss that we've ever had on our own. We only meet together. There is no secrets between us. There is no animosity between us. There is no, he has, you know, ambitions that don't include me and I don't have ambitions that don't include him. And so we sort of built this thing together. And when you sort of commit to that, there was no way that it was not going to work. Wow. I wonder if that came from the incredible relationship that you've always had with your brother, Rich, because that's also made me cry many times in the book, especially the moment where you were offered this job for hundreds of thousands of dollars in Orlando. And your biggest thing was you wrote something about one advantage to doing it is I could send money to Rich for the mortgage for our our house that we own together. That made me cry. I'm not saying it, guys, the way it was. You have to read the book a little bit broken to get the exact words, but it was just so beautiful. And I think that your brother has even more of an impact on you now that your dad has passed. Can you explain the relationship between you and your oh, brother? Oh, yeah. Me and my brother. Well, well, first of all, it's, it's the type of relationship that a lot of people have a hard time wrapping their heads around because I am 48 and my brother is 51 and we have lived together our entire lives with the exception of one year when I was in college and then when I moved to New York for a little while in my wow. 20s. We still yes. live together. I could yell right now. He's working from home. He's upstairs. <laughs> um, and he would come down you know, in a heartbeat. But we just wow. have this relationship that's very difficult for people to explain. And we've always been super close. And we knew because we grew up in a really small town, but we're both very ambitious and artistic and everything else. We knew that the only way that we were going to ever make it is if we were going to make it together. We needed each other. We knew that. And uh, when my dad died, I sort of stepped back and he stepped up and he filled a huge gap in my life when my dad died. And that has sort of solidified us. But I realized, you know, when I got that job to move away and move to Florida, that I... I need accountability in my life. And one of the things that I truly cherish is the way that I'm accountable to him and the way that he's accountable to me. And we've never let the other one fall. And it's a beautiful relationship that I'm so fortunate to have with me and my brother. And I turned down a lot of money. You know, I turned down almost $300,000 in my 20s to go to Florida. And the reason I turned it down was one, you know, I wouldn't have any friends, but two, I wouldn't have my brother. And there was no point on me going down and living this wonderful life if I couldn't share it with anyone. And I knew that I would fall into a very dark place if I was left alone because I was very vulnerable at that period of my life. And I knew that he was the thing that kept me grounded and he was the thing that kept me safe. And so I turned the job down without, you know, having even met with them. 
There's so many stories in the book. Your family was so closely knit together and stitched together. Like even your mother and guys, you have to read the book. Because I can't go through all of the stories because also I want you to read it and read them for yourself because they're way better that way. But just the thing about your mother helping you get the job on Howard Stern and you got the reference letter and it wasn't exactly right. And so she did a little fancy footwork and fixed it up good. And I just, I don't know, that just touched my heart so much as well as a mom yep. understanding that. Wow. And Howard Stern, I mean, there's so many stories. The Bruce Springsteen story, I won't even say that, but that's another yeah. incredible thing. And I got to ask you, how did you get a 21% at Humber College in your English class and then write a book as splendid and spectacular as this? My goodness. Yeah, so I realized, again, we were talking about earlier, you know, what are you good at? And I think part of, you know, finding something to be good at is recognizing what you're not good at. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that I wasn't smart when I was younger. I don't think anybody mm -hmm. truly knows when they're not. You just sort of, you know, float through the world and mm -hmm. you get the marks in school that are good enough to sort of pass from year to year. But I didn't know that I wasn't smart. I didn't know that I couldn't write. And I didn't know that it was such a difficult part of life for me. And I educated myself after I blew every opportunity of a great education that was handed to me. And I realized that I blew it all. And I spent a lot of years just writing and writing and writing and writing and writing and writing and writing different styles. And I became a writer, you know, for television shows and I would write news and I would write all this stuff. And then I realized that when I started this interest in writing, I realized that when it came to this business anyway, is that the person who's usually the best writer is the last one fired when there's layoffs <laughs> happening, because you can take somebody who's a great writer and you can put them in marketing. You can put them in news. You can put them, you can put somebody who's a great writer writer anywhere within any corporation, mm. especially now with social media and websites and everything else, like be a good writer. And I just focused, you know, for years on writing and I loved writing. I hated reading, um, but I loved right. writing. And so that was the sort of evolution of that. But the only reason why this book happened was the same reason why the radio show happened, which was, I felt that I finally had something to say. Right. It's incredible. I can't imagine, and I can't go into this whole story now, but how you were able to do two jobs for so many years, a full-time host on one of the top radio shows in the country, which of course you're still doing, the Roz and Mocha show on KISS 92.5 FM, right? And a yep. full-time television co-host with Cheryl Hickey on Entertainment Tonight Canada, where you really had what seemed to be the dream job, staying at the Four Seasons Hotel, going to five-star restaurants, traveling, interviewing all these huge stars. I know your co-host Cheryl Hickey adores you and was devastated when you left. What prompted you to leave briefly and what was it like saying goodbye? Um, it was time for me to leave. Like I had been telling Catherine that I was going to leave for the last five years. And then she was like, yeah, you need a break. You know, you need to be a little bit more, not present as in that she was expecting that, but I just, I needed to do other things. And I would tell her that this was always my last year. This was always my last year. And then she would be in the living room and hear me in the office on the phone with my lawyer, renegotiating another deal to do another year or two at ET Canada. And she would be like, God, here we go again. And, uh, I love the people. It's I've never really loved the job. It was never about interviewing famous people. It was conversations that I love. I love the creativity. I love the people on that show. I hate traveling. I've never liked traveling, but I liked going in there every day. And I adored, you know, Cheryl. I'd known Cheryl for so many years. 
but it was time. And again, there's mm-hmm. like, you know, when you recognize an evolutionary part of your own life, I think that you have to capitalize on it. But I also think that you have to be willing to give it your everything. And I knew that when this book came out, I was going to have to give it my everything, which meant that I was no longer going to be able to work both of those jobs. And then so I sort of politely, you know, backed away and they were wonderful through everything. And I'm happy I did it. I'm happy I left. Christmas, you mentioned earlier, was always everything to you because it was your dad's favorite holiday. And I just love everything that you talk about Christmas. But I especially love the Anne Murray story when you asked her, what do you listen to on Christmas morning? And she looked at you with those steely eyes and said, I listen to Anne Murray. Moments like that are so fabulous, aren't they, as an interviewer? Like, how did you feel when she surprised you with that answer? Well, first of all, there's a couple people that I never thought that I would really, truly get along with when I was younger. Anne Murray is one of them. Anne Murray and I get along so well, it's weird. (laughs) We have always had such a wonderful time together. Shania Twain is another one where we just click, like we just get along so well, um, but these were all stories because, you know, one of the things and part of the guilt that I carried with me after my dad died was I had said in the book that, you know, while my dad was still alive, I was just sort of always on my way to becoming something. And then all of the sort of success that I had happened after he died. And it killed me that he never got to see all of his hard work pay off. And that's sort of what added to a lot of the guilt. But it's moments like that. It's moments like with Anne-Marie that I know my dad would have loved those stories. And he never would have shut up about them. And where those moments years ago used to crush me, used to break my heart. Anytime I was reminded of things that my dad was going to miss out on, it would really do some damage to me. But now I look at those things so fondly that I don't need him to be present for me to understand how wonderful he would thought those moments were, if that makes sense. Because I know. When I read that on September 17th, 2011, you had a street named after you in your hometown of Acton, Ontario, where you grew up with your dad and your family. What did that feel like? And I know that your dad was beaming from above when that happened. I just felt that. Yeah, that was cool. Um, That was fun because, you know, Roxy was a baby when we did that. And slowly now, you know, she's kind of over the years um, sort of, you know, started to realize what it is we do. And the impact that we had because when you're at home, you know, you're just her dad and that every now and then she just gets reminded that we do have an audience and that, you know, people do listen to the show and love the show. And so it's interesting to me that on a moment like that, like when you get sort of a street named after you, one of the beautiful things I think now is that my dad isn't the first person I think of in those situations anymore. Now it's my kid. Right. And then that sort of is what made me understand my dad more. Because I know that, you know, I was the first person that he thought of in any sort of moments like that. You know, you want to be the first person somebody calls when they have good news or bad news. And I think that that's like, you know, a relationship that you want to cherish in life. But as soon as we had rocks and she started getting a little bit older, she became the first person I thought of um, for everything. And I think that to me, that's the best way to honor my dad. You know, when he died, the world lost a great dad. And when we had our kid, I was going to damn well give it another one. That's fantastic. What is bliss for Roz Weston? Bliss for me is surrounding myself with people who are fully aware of when you need a win and fully aware when you need a hug and aware when you need a laugh and aware when you need a kick in the ass 
And I've surrounded myself. I'm fortunate enough to have surrounded myself and have people in my life who love me, who are all of those things. And when you have that, you become that. And I love being that person to other people. And I'm very good at it. You know, I'm not a very good friend, but I am a great friend. And I've said that, you know, many times over the years. I'm a great friend, not a good friend, but I'm a great friend. I may not be nice, but I am kind. (laughs) And I think that, you know, I'm a piece in a lot of people's lives where I provide that. And so for me, bliss is understanding finally that what makes me as an individual valuable or important is not how much I can take. It's what I can offer. And I went from a life of hiding things to now a life of being a complete open book and finally, you know, having something to offer and offering it up without shame or fear of judgment. And I think that that's a real great place to be. Your dad would be so friggin' proud of you. Thank you very much. I appreciate you for that. What is the best way for people to get your book and to contact and connect with you on social media? Okay. uh, So I'm at Roz Weston on every social media platform. And I will say this in case any fans do come across this because people are so wonderful. Okay. The message I get so much from people (laughs) is what way, if they buy my book, do I make the most money, which is whether it's Kindle or hardcover or the audiobook? Um, all I'm going to say is this. The only thing you should be concerned about with the book is order the book in whatever way gets you the book the fastest. Don't worry about how I get paid. That should not be a concern for you. Order the book on whatever platform you want. But I will say this, the audio book, I'm very, very proud of. It's fabulous. It's, it's your voice. Yeah, I read the audio book and I told them there's a couple moments in the audio book where I, I almost break down. And I had told them when I was recording it, I was like, listen, there's two chapters in this book that I'm going to read one time and one time only because I hadn't read them up to that point again after I submitted the manuscript. And I said, I'm going to read these once and once only. And if I break down or if I cry or if I need a minute, that is what is going you know, in the audiobook yeah. version. I'm not redoing it. I want this in one shot and one shot only because people will be reading this for the first time. And I want them to know that this was me reading this for the first time. So that's what you hear in the audiobook. So I'm very proud of the audiobook. It's fantastic. I want to thank you so much, Roz Weston, for being on the show today. It's really been an honor having you here, really. Thank you. It was a pleasure. This was a really, really lovely conversation. I'm extremely happy. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Each week, we spotlight a celebrity, author, thought leader, mindfulness expert, singer, songwriter, or really anyone who is found and is following their bliss. Please reach out to us. Also, what did you love about today's show? Are there any guests or topics you'd love us to feature on Finding Your Bliss? Write to us at fyb at findingyourbliss.com. I'm also a life coach. If I can help you in any way, let me know. I'm also on Insight Timer. And of course, you can reach out to us at The Bliss Minute on Instagram and Facebook. I'd like to thank our wonderful guest, Roz Weston, for being on the show today. Also, thank you to Mag Ruffman, Siobhan Kiley, producer and audio engineer, Nayira Money, senior editor, Lauren Kaminsky, video editor, Sierra Brown-Rodriguez, audio producer Faz Kazi and everyone here at Zoomer. And of course, a big thank you to our sponsor, the Create Fertility Center. For everyone here, I'm Judy Liebrach, reminding you all to take one step closer to finding your bliss. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.